The Woj Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in an undisclosed location down here in Orange County, California, with the Vice President of Basketball Operations and General Manager of the NBA Champion. Once again, Lakers, Rob Palenka. Rob, how are you? Woj, I'm doing good. I, I can't promise that this will be the best Woj pod ever, but it's probably the coolest location you've ever been at. So uh, It um. is. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we are keeping uh, parts undisclosed, unknown, but it is. I, I said to you when we got here, it is after spending a lot of time with you in the bubble, um, it's nice to see you in a place with no humidity. Yeah. Not having to sweat through everything. Little and, ocean uh, view. We had to get had to get Woj a ocean view, a pool view. So get him uh, out of the studio in Bristol. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so it's pretty remarkable. It's funny. You you were in the bubble longer than I was, and you stayed and you won the championship, and and you come back to L.A. and it's funny. You've been around championships with the Lakers as Kobe Bryant's agent and representing other players. At the time, Derek Fisher, you know, guys, and you've represented players and other teams. And so you've been around it when a team wins a championship. There's obviously a different ownership of it for you when you're the uh, general manager and and you're the architect of the team. But I'm kind of curious, like the celebration in the bubble, it's different. Like, you know, the confetti came down and then you guys had like a party and the little, there was a little restaurant that everybody spent time in. But no parade. You just come home. What's the aftermath of the title been like compared to, I don't know, I guess how you always imagined it would be? Like, you don't have the parade through the streets in L.A., obviously, because of the virus. What's that felt like? You know, it's it's interesting. I spent a lot of time kind of thinking through what lens you're viewing things through. And for me, this one is let's count the blessings instead of the losses. Like, it's easy to think about, oh, we didn't get to have a parade or we didn't get to do this yet. But – to be able to have won a, a championship inside a bubble and to be with the guys and the staff for a hundred days in a row also provided some extraordinary moments that probably future champions will never be able to experience because it was such a unique setting. So I try to spend a lot of time thinking about the parts of this championship that, that make it unique. Um, I think someone said, hey, may, will, this, will this championship in 2020 have an asterisk on it? I, I like to say, no, I, I think it's got a gold star just because <laughs> you had to do so much more to get to the end. And it was just a testament, to, I think, to our team, the players and our staff coming together in that environment. In talking about that environment and what everybody was trying to project going in, what was going to be important, besides playing well, but what about – as a general manager of a team and when you're talking with your coach and you're talking with your players about what is it that we need to be able to really handle in there or to overcome or to, when you look back on it, what was a greater challenge than you imagined going in? Not because no one had any real precedent for it. You know, it's all, I guess to give people a sneak peek, a lot of people say, what was it like inside of the bubble? Um, I guess picture this, you're, you're in a hotel so you're sharing a floor with every player and every staff member. Um, really, our, our places of congregation, there was a meal room, and then there was our study or team film room. And then outside of that, it's the gym. You know, so that, that was pretty much your existence. But 
I think to thrive in that close environment with that many people, it gets down to like, what is the makeup of your team? What's your team DNA? And, and that really starts, I think, with, with our owner, Jeannie Buss. And she has established, and Dr. Buss, before Jeannie, had established the Lakers, our culture, you know, every team has a different culture. Ours is we are focused on player service and being a player-centric organization. And I think that really helped us, Woj, in the bubble. I mean, I, I think let, – let's just take, like, a real-life example. What does that mean? Because that's, you know, just, just language, right? We're player-centric. But you take, like – I was thinking um, about, like, Rondo, who ended up emerging in the playoffs for us in a huge way and, help, and being a huge part of the championship. So what does it mean to be player-centric, player-service, when it comes to his journey into the bubble and then to the championship? He – so he in particular started out, he had a, a friend, like a work colleague that happened to get COVID in New York and, and didn't make it. So can you imagine, I mean, we, again, back to our culture, we wanted to be incredibly, you know, empathetic towards him. Like, what is that like? You, you just lost someone you've worked with and that you know. And so were there reservations with him, with the restart or going into a bubble or dealing with COVID? Of course. So it's how do we partner with him and be player centric? And, and there were a lot of conversations around that. So fast forward, we, Rondo decides to come with us and get in the bubble. And then within the first two or three days, we have a practice in the bubble and he breaks his hand. And that's a devastating moment, especially you've been through quarantine, you know, you, you feel like you're on the runway. And so how do we then in that moment, Woj, partner with him in a player centric way? And then and maybe some of my experience as an agent for 20 years helped me understand like, hey, what does a player need in this moment? Because that's, that's what I did for 20 years. So it was working with him on, okay, how do we safely get hand surgery in a time of COVID? How do we safely rehab him outside of the bubble and journey with him and partner with him? How do we then get him back when he's getting close to being healed, but knowing he's going to have a 10 to 14 day quarantine period in a room where you can't treat him? A lot of pieces to put together around that. Right. Um, no, by the way, your starting guard, Avery Bradley, he's not coming into the bubble. Now you're down, you, you know, you were down essentially two, two, point guards. two point guards. Yeah. And so those situations, I think a team that handles them from that kind of player care can really get through those difficult moments where maybe some players would say, I, I, can't, I can't do all this, I'm done. And then what does that mean to the team? So it's you get him back into the bubble, then you come up with a plan while he's in quarantine to get his hand right. Then he comes back and he, he, he gets a back injury. So it's, you know, these, these things keep coming up and it's how as an organization do you enter in and handle them to keep everyone together. Um, and because all of those things, I think, were handled the way they were, and you could go through all 17 guys on our team has a similar story, it helped us get to the end. But I think that's something that we're proud of. So that component of always um, keeping the players' needs at the center of things and partnering with them, I think was a big advantage for us. You know, the, going into the bubble, you know, there was a lot of talk when, you know, within the league about, okay, is there an advantage? You've earned the number one seed in the Western Conference. And as people saw in there, there were actually home game productions. You would have, like, you know, the same introductions and the video display, and you could use your sponsors could be. And then game three, first round, the game three goes to Portland, and then it's their home game. But you don't have, like, the advantage you build up by having the one seed is you get game seven at home you get 
to start a series at home. Um, was there any sense in there of, and same with, you know, Milwaukee, they've earned the one seed, that, hey, there should be some allowance here to recognize the fact that, like, in a normal year, in a normal situation, there's advantages for us. Was there, I know it was discussed, and you're always going to be outnumbered when you ask for things or bring things up because what's the motivation for everybody else to reward number one? What, what do you remember about that conversation and that walk up to the bubble? Oh, well, you hit it on the head. I mean, there was lots of thinking around that. We, we ended up, once we got in the bubble, thinking through some of the number one seed disadvantages. And when I say that, I mean, there was a play-in series, right? Memphis and Portland. And we were the last team in the West to know who our first round opponent would be. So what does that mean from a GM or coaching perspective? Those other teams are preparing. They're in their film rooms. They're breaking down plays. They're studying. They're putting together their strategy for a playoff series. And, and we're two or three days behind. And so not only that, which was something that, you know, caused us some concern, but then we're watching this tear that Dame Lillard is on and we're thinking, my goodness, this is a team that was in the Western Conference Finals the year before. And I remember going to game one um, when we finally found out we were playing Portland. <laughs> and, you know, in the bubble, there's not much to do before a game. So <laughs> I'm, I'm usually kind of out there making sure our guys are doing well, getting warmed up, and then watching, of course, what the other team is doing and their guys preparing for the game. And Dame Lillard is out there, you know, at the uh, – the NBA logo at right. half court hitting like 25 or 27 before game one even starts. And I'm like, is this really your typical, uh, you know, first round <laughs> opponent as a number one seed? <laughs> it's funny. I remember distinctly when people talk about how different it was, and it was that game. It was walking in the building because there had been the restart games. And in a lot of ways, except for the teams who were competing, like Portland was on a tear to try to get in the playoffs. And, you know, other teams were trying to reach and they were playing. But for a lot of other teams, it was just positioning and whatever. It, there wasn't a, a, a big game feel necessarily. But now it's game one of the playoffs. And I always remember walking in that day there and I see you and Neil mm -hmm. O'Shea, the president of the Blazers. And the, again, it's not there aren't many people around the periphery of the court. It's the same we would see. A few of us in our profession, the GMs, the coaches are on the court and TV people. And I'm just thinking about what it feels like to walk into a game one of the playoffs for the Lakers. When the Lakers are a one seed and you'd walk in the building and like, here's Andy Garcia and here's Denzel. And there's just, and there's just like this electricity in the building. This is game one. And I just, that was when it hit me. It was like, hey, this is really different. D did you feel that way that day? No question. I mean, and you alluded to it earlier, Avery Bradley and his wife Ashley decided for family and medical reasons to not come back, um, which we fully supported. And we were down Rondo because of the broken hand. So we're going into the series to play against CJ and Dame, two incredible scoring guards, without two of our, our rotational guards that were both great defenders. So of course we were looking to what would the home court advantage give? Staples Center with you know, celebrities everywhere, um, the place on fire, and we didn't have it. And so that's where you kind of go back to what I talked about at the beginning is just I think the framework of our team, and it was really led by our two captains, LeBron and AD, um, it, it was such a almost like a collegial environment in the bubble. Like our 
our floor almost felt at times like a college dorm room. And I say that in a good way, but you know, Kyle Kuzma had a birthday early. So we did the pool party birthday celebration, (laughs) you know, AD loves the Packers. So we would do Monday night football, watch, watch the game and get pizza, but trying to create some fun because you're away from friends and family. And it, it was really led by, by those two guys. So I think the energy for our team really came from, from that and our togetherness. We didn't have the fans, I told my wife when she would call and be like, hey, what's what's watching games from the bubble like? It almost felt like going to the movies. You have this huge production set with all these lights. And then, you know, you were there that first night. I was there. You're sitting in a dark kind of area in a seat, and you can't talk. Like right. you're at the movie and you're watching like, this. Like, that's, I, had, I thought a lot <laughs> of comparisons. Like, you know, I hadn't thought of that one. That's but, exactly you know, right. you're watching this show. So, but, but I think it came, that fuel came from the fabric of our team and just the togetherness of the guys led by LeBron and AD and just our culture. How much do you think your team benefited from in that environment than the, when the, the player strike boycott happened and the – all that took place there in that 48, 72-hour window. How much do you think, having been in China when you were, and going through something that might have felt similar in that you were in a, like, you were in a bubble of sorts in China, that your team went through that, which feels like it was another season ago, but it wasn't. Um, because that China... You were there to play the Nets. The Daryl Morey tweet came. There then became this standoff and great uncertainty in China with the teams about whether the games would even be played and all that. Looking back, did going through that have a benefit to dealing with the stuff you were you were working through in, in the bubble? Yeah, it's it set the tone in some sense, Woj, because I, I've said this before, and, and some people applaud this and some people don't, but but – Everything we do is about collaboration with the guys. And I can remember early in China being in boardrooms with LeBron and AD and talking through like the gravity of what we were facing and saying, what do you think? What, what do you think our next move is? And then there were times when Adam Silver, once he got there, would come in and join those meetings and, of course, addressed the Lakers and the Nets in the, in the infamous ballroom meeting that happened. But I think setting the tone that we were not an organization that was sort of like top down, like Zeus comes down from the mountains and throws the thunderbolts down. Like that's just not how we work. It's more like, okay, let's sit around a table with our guys, get a sense of what they think is important and then, and then attack it. And I, I think we did that in China and it was, it was, it was tenuous. It was hard. There was a lot of complicated things to get through. Um, and that, I think, provided a fabric because I remember the night, of course, after uh, the walk away from some of the teams started by the Milwaukee Bucks over the Jacob Blake incident. Um, I did feel like there were points that night when all the meetings started happening where maybe the bubble was going to come to an end. There's no question. And it's, it's interesting in times like that when people emerge as leaders and in unpredicted ways and we worked really hard to formulate a coaching staff that had a particular um, connectedness and different skills for different areas, which I think played out really well in the bubble, obviously led by Frank. And we can talk later about some of his amazing defensive schemes he had for each team we played in the playoffs. But 
in that particular time, Jason Kidd emerged in a huge way. I'll be forever grateful. Um, of course, he was on the USA team with LeBron. And because of being a Hall of Fame player and winning championships as a player, he just has a way to to be a listener and to be a problem solver. And that night when the emotions were high, rightfully so, you know, I can remember him being up till three, four in the morning, just, just being there to talk and to work through issues. Because when LeBron and Anthony are, are making decisions about the future of our team, they, they've got to be heard. You, you, you've got to kind of unpack and go through all the issues with them. And um, Jason was a listening ear. Of course, their agent, Rich Paul, um, was a bit, played a big role too in kind of letting them see the issues from all the different spheres, the financial sphere, the social justice sphere. But there was a, there was a key moment that's been publicized where, and I remember being with Jason when this was happening, where the players, LeBron and Chris Paul and, and, and a couple others, got on the phone with, with the former president, uh, Barack Obama. And that was a pivotal moment just in terms of the advice that was given about, hey, let's just focus on a couple issues. If you try to bite off too much, you'll get nothing done. And I think coming out of that time where they were able to then sort of partner with the governors and the owners to come up with a voting plan and to come up with, um, you know, running ads about, about voting. In those times where the bubble seemed tenuous, leaders emerged. Who would have known Barack Obama would have gotten on the phone? Who would have known Jason Kidd was built for a time like that to be around our players? So um, I think that's, that's the other part of the bubbles that the bubble stories that the world doesn't know. That meeting that night in the bubble, and it wasn't just players. Coaches were there, all the coaching staffs, and there was a point where the coaches left and then left it to the players. I'm trying to remember if – I don't think the front offices were there. I think it was coaches and players, right? Yeah. And all the teams were going through it, especially those who had championship aspirations. There's a lot at stake to walk away from this, and you're balancing – you're, it's, you're balancing things and you're weighing things. Uh, but I felt it from several teams that how tenuous it was, the meeting after the meeting, and then midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., first thing in the morning. But you, you thought really until they got on the phone with President Obama, it might be going the other way. You know, Woj, I think it was a combination of, of a lot of things because those, those decisions are always fluid, right? So it, it's not like an on-off switch, like we're staying, we're going. But I think working through it, through the night and then um, I think emotions get worn down too if you think about all of the things that were happening in society and then you multiply it with the fact that we're men and there were women there too that are away from our families as as sort of protectors or as sort of leaders and I think all of these things just kind of they 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 multiply the emotions and then you know you're, you're up in the middle of the night. You're tired. You've got a game the next day. There's just so many things coming at you. It's tough to make decisions in those environments, but that's where true leadership is formed. And I just remember the next morning after kind of going through everything, our captains met with the other players, and it was very clear, like, hey, we've thought through all this. We get all angles and all sides, but we want to move forward. And, and for us, I don't think there was really any turning back from that kind of pivot point um, to a point where the focus to get to the end and win a championship was even greater. 
we had a Zoom call with Dr. John Carlos at one point inside of the bubble. And one of the things he said is you've got to put in the work to get to the platform. And he, he spoke in terms of, hey, a lot of, a, a lot of people focus on the fact that I was on a, a metal Olympic podium and did something, but that's really where it shouldn't be where the focus is. It was on the work I needed to do to get there. And so as a team, we talked a lot about, we have sacrificed so much. We have put in so much work. The way to make this platform the biggest is to, is to be able to raise the Larry O'Brien trophy in the end. And I think from that point on, we were just locked in. I thought, too, at that point, that the league didn't build a break into the bubble. I mean, there was a sense of, like, once everybody was in there, like, let's get in and out as fast as you can. You're gonna, there's no travel, so the, you could play every other day. Once you were in the playoffs, you could play every other day. The finals, there were a couple days. I think once there was a couple days off. But I understood why they didn't, because you didn't know. But I, it seemed like when that, when the Jacob Blake happened – there was an inflection point. I think everyone was like, everybody was kind of fried. And then that is happening. And then it felt like that break and then the restart, there needed to be a break. There needed to be uh, an ability to sort of step back. And I, I, you sense it around there. And again, it wasn't built into it, but looking back or even through it, I just got the sense from everybody Everybody needed a chance to sort of hit a reset button in there and then sort of recalibrate this whole thing. And then, okay, let's start back down this path. Yeah, I think, I think recalibrate or um, a recatalyst, I, I would go with break. I don't know if I would. I, I remember one night uh, I was up late and trying to just help our equipment guy and, and, and Andrew and, and, it was when we were in the playoffs getting a little bit closer to the end. And I said to him, I was like, Hey, you know, if we get to the end and win a championship, what, what are you looking forward to the most? And his, his answer was telling. And I thought about it a lot, but he just said, getting a day that doesn't involve work. And listen, you're, if you're in a bubble to win an NBA championship for 100 days in a row, there really is no break. Because you're on a floor with all of your work colleagues. You've got no mission but a mission to win. You've got nowhere to go. I mean, for the, for the executives and the other workers, we didn't have friends and family there at the time. So it, it, it never felt like there was a break the whole time. It felt like it was 100 days of hard work. And I'm sure a lot of the players feel that way, too. Um, but I do think it was it was maybe a, a, a recatalyst of sort of what what is our purpose and like I said, it felt like that moment locked us in um, even more to get to the end. In your view, from the moment Anthony Davis arrived in the trade, through training camp, a tremendous start to the season, and then you have a weekend right before the shutdown where you beat the Clippers, you beat the Bucks. Uh, on a Friday, Sunday, I remember standing on the court with you before the game on Sunday, you and me and Rachel Nichols, and we were talking about, we were talking about the virus and, and we all knew something was coming. Like it was going to have to be, it was not, it was going to be reckoned with in the league, not just in our society, but you kind of knew you guys were getting the reports multiple times a day from the league office and you had your own and preparing for it. And then when that Wednesday night, it all shuts down, but from there and then with Anthony and, and, and LeBron, what did you see from the beginning 
with the two of them that allowed it to just be as seamless. Sometimes when you think of LeBron going to Miami and it took time with them and other players, the Clippers, it did not go how they wanted it to go. We could go down the list of star players joining, and I just can't think of one that from the moment I started watching them on the court together, it felt like these two have been playing together forever. When you were on the inside of it, being on the inside of it, why? Why do you think it was? You know, I think um, it's interesting. Uh, Anthony, of course, is is from Chicago, grew up there. That's where I I happened to grow up. And and he's got um, sort of like a Midwestern, like, humble confidence about him. And I think that really both LeBron and AD have approached their partnership and their relationship through that lens of like, I want to, I want to do everything I can to help the other guy. And you could, you could just see that lived out in little things. It started with, Hey, do you want, do you want number 23? (laughs) And And that's just been a thread of kind of, of, of putting aside like self-interest and, hey, what's best for me? And thinking through, hey, how can I help this other guy out? And I'll start with AD. AD did that throughout the season as the best defensive player in the world, a guy that can guard one through five and do all the things that AD did in the bubble that the world saw from guarding Jamal Murray to the fives like um, Nurkic with Portland. I mean, he, he one through five, he can guard – I think his theme from the beginning of camp when Coach Vogel stamped our team as a defensive team was to was to challenge and to encourage LeBron to be defensively great, which he which LeBron was in the bubble and was one of the keys to our success um, and throughout the season. Um, vice versa. So if you flip it now and you think about, okay, that's something that AD helped LeBron be even greater at. Now let's look at it the other way. LeBron's leadership in terms of what does it take to keep your body functioning at the highest of level to get all the way to the end. And for AD, just to see the level of professionalism and perfectionism that LeBron puts in every day into what he eats, how he trains, how he takes care of his body, how he stays mentally focused, you could see AD learning how to battle through that process and make it battle through injuries and stay on the court. In the bubble, AD played through some really tough stuff. And, and part of that, I think, is, is, is the medical team around it. But part of it is just seeing LeBron's mindset. Um, and I think uh, – so it's, it's, it's a reciprocal how do I help the other guy nature and, and then leading with kind of that humble confidence that they both have. You've been around it. You were around it as an agent with players and understanding the dynamics of how certain players fit together and how the dynamic impacted the team. And a lot of the job of you know, president, GM mm-hmm. in the NBA is managing those relationships because they impact the entire locker room. They, impi- they impact the entire team. They impact, the, they impact everything. And a lot of time is spent in the NBA working through that stuff. And it doesn't always work like it does there. When those guys are together and they're connected, how dramatically different does it just make your ability to just sort of handle every other thing there. Because if they're not connected, that's the thing every day you got to deal with. And then other things sort of, I think, can't be dealt with or whatever. You guys always had the ability to deal with your other stuff because they were – and it's just – it's how it's supposed to be, but it's not how it usually is in the league. 
Yeah, I mean, well, you've said it before. I mean, to have ownership, you know, president, GM, and and coach connectedness around a player is the only way you can get to the end. And I think, as I said in the beginning, Jeannie sets the tone for that. And then I'm thankful that, gosh, the lens of 20 years of seeing what works to keep players together, whether it's superstars or whether it's the 17th guy in the bubble, keeping everybody aligned and together. I, I say this to people all the time, general manager, like the, the word manager is a big part of that. Yes, do you have to go to you know, Europe and be in gyms at all over the hours of the night to find the next great player? Sure. But so much more of it is keeping everything functioning smoothly. And that that's managing the relationships. And I think we've done that really, really well. What does LeBron demand of an organization? What does LeBron want? What have you learned that he wants from an, from an organization from top to bottom? How does he, through his prism, how should it be operating? What, what's really important to him? You know, he's been incredibly genuine about this. His expectations are that everybody around him wants to work as hard and be as good at what they do as he is. Um, and if he sees that lived out through actions, he's, you know, we've all heard him say it's, 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 about, it's not about the talk, it's about the walk. And so if he sees an owner committed to that, a general manager committed to that, a teammate committed to that, a coach committed to that, he continues to just do what he does. And that's what we've seen in L.A. You know, he's, he's been incredibly supportive. Um, and as long as he sees that commitment to hard work and excellence, he's going to just continue to focus on his craft and leading the team. And uh, I think that, that set the tone for, for all of us. I, I remember we were getting ready to play – the the heat in game six and um and of course game five the heat won and um you know jimmy had a a great game because he's a great player but if you look back at game five he was almost jimmy was almost like the quarterback who's at the offensive line and you know he's surveying the defense and he's comfortable and he's audibling he's pulling all the strings and that that's kind of what we allowed him to do in game five and I remember as Coach Vogel, who, again, is a very collaborative guy with his, with his decisions, LeBron and Rondo in particular, LeBron stepped up and said, hey, I, I'm, I'm taking him. I'm taking him for game six. And Rondo said, hey, this championship, this particular championship is going to be won with defense. And he said, Bron, if you're not in the game, if you're not on him, I got him. I'm not going to let him be comfortable and survey the line. I'm going to get up under him. I'm going to agitate him. And so I think just having that mindset that LeBron has of doing what it takes to be the best, I think permeates through the whole team and through the whole organization. And AD, I would say the same thing about him. Rob, take me back to the night that LeBron, uh, January 25th, LeBron passes Kobe on the scoring list and, um, you know, it was a moment in the NBA, and it was a, is a Laker moment. And I think by both their admissions, like, I think you always think there's going to be time. And when, when LeBron signed with the Lakers, I think Kobe said to him, hey, I'm here. If you need anything, I'm here. And then the year goes by, and Kobe's living 
a very different life than than an NBA life, and and he's engaged in all the things he was doing, family-wise, professionally, and then he breaks the record or, or passes him on the, the thing. And, and what, what do you remember about that night? And, and also, they were rivals for a very long time. I mean, they were rivals. And they were a little bit of a different generation in the league. Kobe was older. As you've gotten to know LeBron, and you knew Kobe better than anybody, that they probably had more in common. And listen, they had been around each other a lot. They'd played on Team USA, whatever, but always... Like, each had something the other wanted. I, I, I wonder, as you've gotten to know LeBron and think, boy, I think they would have benefited at this stage where they're not competing anymore and they're both just Lakers, that that um, that was something else lost in all of this, that their relationship never got to kind of go to a different place than it was as competitors. I mean, listen, the, the one thing that is so clear about, about both Kobe and LeBron is they're, they're maniacal about the game of basketball and you know if if you start to think about the Mount Rushmore of basketball and names like Jordan and and LeBron and Kobe and Magic I mean just for me to have been able to experience in different capacity all those guys still like blows me away but you know in terms of the night of like scoring and and passing each other what's interesting about both both of those players LeBron and Kobe is Neither of them, I think, were satisfied or had as a goal scoring. I mean, both LeBron and Kobe are only about one thing, and that's, you know, winning titles. And um, the similarities in their approach of just being maniacal about doing whatever it takes to win championships is everything to both of those guys. And it's interesting. You say, oh, you say maybe they could have – you know, had more of a relationship if the tragedy of 126 um, didn't occur. But I've almost seen post-126 the relationship between Kobe and LeBron in some sense, obviously now more spiritual, being more powerful. Um, And I think just Kobe and Gigi's spirit in, in all of us and sort of what that means and how it motivates us is, is transcendent. I, I, we saw it lived out in a moment in the bubble when AD obviously hit the, the big shot against Denver. Um, and the first words out of his mouth were, you know, were Kobe. He had the, we had the black Mamba uniforms on. I, I was always calling uh, Nike and, and my, my friend Nico to make sure that AD's Kobe footwear was, was the best in the bubble. <laughs> and uh, AD carried that torch well, but just the way that all of us in our relationships with Kobe and Gigi and their spirit and what they mean to us, I think the relationship is still strong for all of us. Was there ever a thought in your mind of, of, of how to balance coming to L.A. and, and the, the specter of Kobe and, and life and, and what he'd accomplished, just like with Magic or Kareem and all the great Lakers, it is a lot to live up to. And I thought LeBron said something really interesting in the bubble right before you won the championship, which is what he realized with Laker fans is they don't give a damn really what you did before you got here. They care about you winning here. And the expectation is, like, I don't think the Lakers hang up conference final banners or Eastern Conference, some or excuse me, Western Conference semifinalists. It's like you go over to Pauley Pavilion, there's national championship banners. You go over to your practice facility, your Staples. It's NBA championships, and that's – but to balance – 
honoring Kobe, using his spirit as a motivate, all the things you did, but not have it be something that was going to suffocate the team or overwhelm or put pressure, because there's already a lot of pressure to play for the Lakers. Was there a balance on how you, I want this to be a positive for the team, not something that becomes too much to navigate. Yeah, I mean, I think about, of course, all of us think about January 26th all the time and, and a, a championship ring or championship banners um, would never take the sting of that away. But I think what it does is it makes us feel proud that in this tragic year, we could honor their legacies by carrying it forward with, with how we live. And you know Kobe was about living for excellence and the hard work, and and so was Gigi. I, I remember um, we, we've all seen the footage of, of and how tender and beautiful it was when Kobe and Gigi were going to games, sitting courtside, mm-hmm. and he's, he's mentoring her in the ways of play. And um, I can remember, I think it might have been their last game together at Staples Center. Um, she, she had – she was picking certain players she wanted to study because she was just like her dad and she wanted to see Luca play. So you'll recall, uh, you know, Kobe was speaking in foreign tongue to Luca throughout <laughs> the game. And, and, and there were some beautiful moments of, of Kobe and Gigi there. And I, I can, I can remember at halftime of that game. Um, of course, like anytime Kobe came to a game, he wanted to catch up. And, and so Kobe and, and I and Gianna ended up in the um, L.A. Kings locker room because, of course, the Lakers weren't ours. And we were just sitting around, I think, you know, eating some popcorn. And, and I remember Gigi looked at me and she said, she said, um, she's un- she goes, Uncle Rob. She calls me Uncle P because of my last name. She said, Uncle P. <sighs> she said, you know, I'm watching this game and I'm looking around. She goes, you guys are going to win the title this year. And I said, well, Gigi, why do you think that? And she goes, your defensive size and length and athleticism. In the playoffs, she said, it, it's tough to make threes and the rim gets smaller and guys feel the pressure. And just your size and ability to cover space and take away the rim, she goes, teams aren't going to be able to score on you. You guys are going to win the championship. And I just – I think back to, like, that's kind of exactly what happened. I mean, mm-hmm. if you th- look about game six, I mean, Miami just couldn't score in the first half. And our defense is what carried us. But just thinking back on, I mean, I have millions of moments like that, of course, with Kobe over 20 years and Gigi as her, as her godfather. Just living out those moments makes it just so powerful. Um, and I'm just thankful that she was right. January 26th, and we're in the end of October now. And I was telling you before we started i obviously we're in la we're in southern california and i walked by just a collage of photos in one of our buildings of him and it just just walking down the hall and these things are always up and i just stopped and i was just looking at it and it was a bunch of moments of the lakers and you see the sweat coming off of them and you just there's still moments where you go i can't believe he's gone i i can't i still haven't processed it and that is not to compare it to what you and, and, and obviously vanessa and the kids like they you all live it in a obviously a far different way. Um, what do you miss when you think about when you want to reach for the phone to call him or text or, or the thing that you would feel like, oh, I want to tell him, when is it? Hmm. You know, I think um, 
we've all we've all grown up with with superheroes you know watching reading the books and the comics as a kid and watching the movies and um you think about what it would be like if your best friend was actually a superhero you do dream about that right <laughs> and i feel like mine was i mean he literally was this larger than life best friend who had an answer to every problem had a piece of advice for anything you needed and I remember when I got the Lakers job um, he took me to a, a place in Newport and wanted to just have drinks and I, I remember him looking me in the eye and saying hey he's like I know how you work I know how locked in you are I know you're a chess player he said I think you'll have the Lakers back winning a championship in two to three years. <laughs> and I said, you got to be crazy. We have, we have no cap room. We had just signed a couple free agents, uh, the previous front office, and we didn't have any cap room. And, we didn't, and, and I looked at him like, you're crazy, but I'll put in the work to do it. And I, I think back to that moment, I think it being in the bubble. And, um, you know, you're in a hotel room for 100 nights. The walls are closing in and – you know, after a tough loss, you think the world's coming to an end and you have you have no dog to take on a walk, no <laughs> wife to go home and right. give a hug. And so the walls start closing in on you. And there were times when I would hear his voice and then Vanessa, who's still one of my best friends, um, she would call, you know, or, and she would she would even send um, a couple clips of him talking to me so I could hear his voice. So just that that support still feels like it's there. But um the extent of the loss feels like a superhero because that's, you know, that's what he uh, was to me and still is to me. Did you, were you able in the aftermath, I think, I don't know how much you were looking at the outpouring or how you were dealing with Vanessa and the family and your own grieving. Did you get a sense of not just the reaction in LA or in the country but around the world, did you ever get a, a, your arms around the impact it had in places maybe you wouldn't have imagined it ha would have? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it, it shifted the axis of the earth, it felt like, on the 26th. I mean, just thinking of even, even watching um, recent sports events like uh, the U.S. Open, mm -hmm. you know, Naomi when she wore the – I mean, it just continues to be something that I think the way he and Gigi approach life in the game I think is with us forever. And I think it, that torch that torch is something that we all carry. I, I remember I um, one of the players I represented um, as an agent was Andre Iguodala. And, um, and um, I remember, you know – we as an organization, of course, if you go back even to pre-January 26, we had, you know, a tough media cycle the year LeBron got hurt and went through some some really hard things. And then, um, obviously, the, the tragedy of the 26 and COVID. And, and I remember right in the midst of all that, he um, had sent me a, um, it was like a kind of a, a faith devotional, like a story, right? Just mm -hmm. something inspirational in it. And it was about um, kind of the archetype of, uh, of the story of Joseph, which we probably know from Andrew Lloyd Webber, or we know, you know the musical he wrote, or from, if we're people of faith, we know from the Torah or from the Old Testament. But it was about, hey, oftentimes before 
a leader is used in big ways, they'll, they have to go through really, really hard things. And he just encouraged me. He's like, you're going through all of these things at once. It's, this is an extraordinarily hard year, but, but stay strong and keep your faith because this is all going to happen for a reason. And it, how unbelievable is it that it turned out that we played, the Lakers played against the Heat and Andre Godal in the finals. And I remember just after the game getting an embrace from him and thinking back to that moment of encouragement and all that we had endured and just so thankful that there was a breakthrough, that winning a championship, what it means to the NBA, just that we got to the end, what it means to you know, the first woman um, owner in the history of, of sports. That's a redemptive moment we, that's powerful. What it means for carrying forward Kobe and Gigi's legacies, what it means to our fans, this city, getting people through COVID. So there was just so much in it, Woj, that everything we've been through, it, it felt like, you know, happened as part of this story. It's funny. The morning when you started to hear of on that Sunday morning, and it was a helicopter, and you're thinking, why would he be on a helicopter on a Sunday morning? Why would they be? And I immediately thought of a conversation, even before it was known he was headed, you know, GG, and they were headed to travel basketball. I remember thinking that's probably what it was because you and I had been talking, I want to say a couple weeks earlier, I was in LA and you had been telling me a story about, I think he might have come to one of your games with your, your coach and your kids. And he came to a game and we were just talking about how his life was very full with, I hadn't talked to him in a bit, but like that he was very, um, locked into the travel basketball circuit. We all know those games are Sunday mornings. They're weekend mornings. Yeah. And 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 I remember having that conversation with you. It had been just a while before where he had been at one of your games, right? Yeah, so it was funny because, of course, he had Gigi's team and he had the advantage of, you know, getting plays from Phil Jackson and <laughs> running the triangle. I remember his 40th birthday. We were in, you know, Vanessa had, had gotten this this amazing <laughs> – like house in Cabo and we were all celebrating and uh and he was just so proud of Gigi pull out the iPad and show show us plays and so you know she was a couple years older than my my son who's 12 and um he was like our team is so good we want to take on the boys team you know um and so he put together in Newport Beach a game where um Gigi's team could play against Durham's team and he was the coach he had the coaching shirt he, he comes in the gym and he's got the net bag with the balls and he's got the refs and he's handing them a whistle and had lined everything up and um he was hoping for like a 40 point blowout they ended up beating us by like a point I think <laughs> um but yeah obviously a great memory he was so committed and really just to kind of advancing the women's game, you know, with the orange sweatshirt and the WNBA too. He was, he was so passionate about being a girl dad, but I'll never forget that particular game coaching against him after being his agent for all these years. It was, it was pretty amazing. Is there any kid on the floor who's not just running up and down the court, looking at him and look like, how do those guys, when he's coaching, I imagine their eyes are sort of I mean, Durham was used to seeing him. He no. grew up with him. But for everybody else on the court, I imagine it takes a while for them to get <laughs> for, for them to have gotten maybe locked into the game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he would he would talk about, hey, you know, I'm having 
this superstar NBA player come down and speak to the team. I'm having Diana Taurasi come. I'm having this. And so there was these built-in advantages. But then once the game started, he was very zen on the bench. Yeah. You know, he would never yell. He wouldn't scream. He would kind of point and, and get their actions going. But he was so much about the detail and the preparation leading up to the game that he wasn't very animated on the bench. Right. Otherwise, everyone would have been watching him the whole time and not the game. <laughs> Moving forward for your team, Rob, you know, when you're trying, you're always planning and you're always looking down the road and imagining you've got to be prepared for a lot of scenarios in terms of managing your cap and when you might have space and who might be available and how long you're going to go with, you know, and and, um, I think the expectation is and there's optimism that you'll keep Anthony and you'll move forward and and, and LeBron's under contract. And but when you when you saw LeBron this year at 35 headed for 36 and we don't really have I don't think we really have a, a comp to him at the level he's playing at the age he's playing there's very few very few have ever played at the level anyway but at the age he's doing it um and when you sort of traded for AD and you looked and you said okay how much longer can LeBron play at that age? how much longer do we have a one two that's better than everybody else's and you go through another year where you go <laughs> well, you're asking yourself, we have a runway here. Like, he's not falling off a cliff. He's not falling off of a, you know, like there's not just going to be this dramatic drop with him. Um, his game's not built off his athleticism. It's built off his skill and his intelligence. And obviously his size and strength make him impossible. But he can just keep going. And I, I just wonder how it af- affects your thinking of going, geez, we, we could – because of him, like, we have a chance to, to be really good for a long time. Yeah, I think, you know, you and I talked a little bit about this the other day. But um, in terms of, you know, if you go back to sort of last July, and obviously we made a run with a max slot um, to sign a player. And, but, but the whole time, and, and some of this maybe comes from the Kobe philosophy of always having counters. Like, he used to have – the best move, and then NBA defenses would adjust and take that move away, but he'd have a counter to it. We knew in that free agency, like, hey, okay, we're going to try to sign a, a max free agent, but if it doesn't work out, here's our counter. And I think um, if you look back to the July before this season, I mean, we pivoted quickly, and we had our chessboard sort of set with the players we wanted to get. And we were very intentional, Woj, about um, – you know, keeping our flexibility. If you study and look at our cap, um, we do want to do a couple things. We hope that we can, um, you know, have another championship run next year for sure. And we're going to work hard to try to keep the pieces around LeBron and AD, um, build pieces around LeBron and AD to do that. But also with the future, if, again, if you study our cap, we have the flexibility to say, um, can we add another you know, really, really talented young player to, to run it out with AD if he chooses to stay as a free agent for five, six, seven, eight years. And there's been no letdown in, in, in LeBron's production. And I think so much of that is just a testament to the way he takes care of his body. And then he's one of the highest IQ players the game's ever seen. I mean, having 100 days in the bubble and being able to be in the film room every day because there's nothing else to do, so you're going to be with the guys. 
the way that he approaches and breaks down film. <laughs> there were days where, where Coach Vogel, who is masterful, and we, we should talk a little bit about him and his defensive schemes, but there were days in the film room where we would be walking from the film room over to practice, and he would be like, man, that was, that was like 50 minutes. It was an hour. Do you think that was too long? Was it too heavy? And and if LeBron was biased, I heard us be like, no, I love that stuff. Let's keep going. <laughs> I mean, he's just he, – he, he, so mentally, like you said, he just attacks the yeah. opponent and picks the game apart with his, his size and his skill level and his mental IQ, and, and none of that is, is going away anytime soon. So, yeah, I think the runway is there, and um, we're going to continue to build around AD and LeBron for, for the years he has left and then beyond that with AD. You think of how it started with Frank Vogel, and I think of the news conference you had when you were introducing Frank Vogel, which was supposed to be um, a Frank Vogel news conference. You're introducing him. You had hired him. Um, Magic Johnson had gone on that morning and had talked and had been critical of, had been critical of you, and then you get to this press conference and like, you know what's coming, and it's not, hey Frank, what are your rotations look going to look like? Hey Frank, what's it going to be like coaching? LeBron, he hadn't traded for AD yet. What do you remember about that? Because you've hired a new coach, and you had to know what you were walking into that morning, and um, uh, certainly a long way from the two of you being on stage and celebrating in, in the bubble. But um, it, was, it was a unique start to that partnership. Yeah, I mean, first, uh, you know, I remember – the, my first day on the job with Irvin, uh, with Magic, and I remember meeting with Jeannie, and we were talking about how important it was to somehow create flexibility with our cap to have two stars playing with each other. Because if you look back at the great Lakers teams that have won championships, there were always multiple stars, and we knew that was something that we had to accomplish. As hard as it was, it started, of course, with the Mozgov trade to Brooklyn and picking up Kyle Kuzma, and then um, – you know, Lou Aldang and kind of getting him off, you know, getting him off the cap and, and creating the space that led to this team that we had. But credit has to be given to him. And Jeannie said this, I've said it just for the vision at the beginning and, and how he helped really get us going. And um, as we talked about in the bubble, you know, my relationship with him is as strong as ever. He's calling constantly with, with advice. He's been there as a friend through some of the really hard stuff with Kobe. Um, so, you know, just thinking back to how there's been redemption there and, and how grateful we are for him as a leader and, and as a friend and just what he means to the franchise. But that particular press conference, yeah, it was, was tense <laughs> for sure. Um, and that at the beginning of this job, I remember I said to my wife, I said, the one thing I'm committed to is I can't get caught up in, in if there's media praise you can't get caught up in that because you'll get big-headed and prideful. At the same time, if there's narratives in the media that, that, that aren't true, that are critical, you can't buy into those or then you will get discouraged. What you have to focus on is the work. And so we've just stayed committed to that, and that press conference was, was, was an example of that, just staying committed. Like, this is our coach. And, and Frank has been a, a, an incredibly um, – graceful leader, collaborative leader, and, and I think it started that day. I, I'm so proud of, if you look at each of our series in the bubble, Woj, um, you know, so we start against Portland, and the, the schemes that he had with 
Jason Kidd and Lionel Hollins and Phil Handy and Mike Pemberthy and Miles Simon and Quentin Cross. Just the schemes that he had against Dame were, were amazing that he put together. I won't share what they were because we play again next year. Um, and then, you know, go on to the next series, Houston, and you're facing two MVPs, you know, in, in Harden and Westbrook. And, 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 and what he put together, again, went small. All of a sudden, Dwight and JaVale aren't playing, and he completely adjusted to, to stopping their small ball or their micro ball. And then, obviously, the, the Denver series with Jokic and Murray playing as good as any tandem in the league and, and how he combated that. And then, of course, to the finals with this Heat team that, in some sense, with Jimmy and their shooters and just all the actions they ran off the ball, at times they felt like Golden State – um, how he kind of adapted and ended up starting Caruso, you know, but just the moves he made. Uh, he's an incredible tactician, a brilliant basketball mind. And the thing that drew Kurt Rambis and I, as we were putting the coaching staff together about him, was definitely the defensive things he did with the Pacers. Mm -hmm. That was probably the thing that we studied the most. And um, I think is he was brilliant at it in the bubble. You know, it's funny, and people sometimes – sometimes there can be more than one right coach for a team. And, you know, like I remember talking about this with Kobe once, and we were talking about is this guy a championship – like where you look – somebody who hasn't won one, right? Is that guy a championship coach or is that guy – and so much of being a head coach in the league is dictated by the circumstances and where you were and what your roster was. Different guys, there can be variances of how good or bad our team would be, but you're not winning without talent. Nobody is. And I remember Kobe saying, I can't remember who we were talking about, but he said, like, hey, like, like is that guy a championship coach? And he's just like, you know, when, whoever it was we are talking about, and he goes, nobody is until they do it. Like, nobody's a championship coach till they do it. And so you can't really know. And it's, and it's who rises to the moment and fits the group. Not every coach is right for every group. And I think Frank's a great example of that. And, like, he, you know, like, in Indiana, they had a, you know, a good deal of success. And then Orlando, he didn't have a – wasn't a very good roster, and success was limited. But I also think sometimes guys who have faced adversity, who have been fired, they're in a different place mentally to say, you know what, I'm going in to do it the way I think is right and how I want to do it. And um, I'm going to go down with what I believe in is right. I'm not going to and, – and they're in a different mind space to, like, go and really coach the way you've got to coach to command a group. And, and I, I just felt with Frank the whole time there was great conviction to what he was doing, how he was doing it, and obviously showed in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an underrated skill to be um, a, a really good listener and collaborator. And the thing that he does really well – um, and I and I get on one end of the spectrum, you can have the sort of my way or the highway coach, like I made you who you are and play my way. I get it. And that can work for some teams, but it's really not our philosophy. And it, again, I talked at the beginning about Genie and, and how player centric we want to be. And here's what one of the things that Frank does well, and I experienced this um, on a daily basis as we as we built the roster, as he kind of kept the roster together and used all the pieces so effectively. But, you know, Woj, in life, like, like answers are, are rarely, like, crystal clear, black and white. And so, you know, in law school, one of the things you learn so much is, like, consider both sides of an issue and be really good at the arguments on both sides, and then you'll be a great advocate. 
And that Frank does a really good job of like, okay, should we, you know, should we blitz this guy on defense or should we, you know, just uh, contest and recover, you know, and it, it can be, that can change the result in a game, but he'll listen to his staff, both sides of it, maybe talk to the captains about it, take it all in. And then he'll do a great job of owning the decision and taking a leadership standpoint. This is what we're going to do, and this is what I've decided. But on the front end, the ability to bring other people to the table and respect their opinions and listen to them before a decision is made, I think is a, is a, is a really powerful art. It's something that I've tried to do. We have, a, we have a really great front office with a lot of different lenses. If you think about, you know, Jeannie – um, and Linda, in terms of just the years of experience they have and the seats they're in, um, you know, we have young parts of our governor team and, and, and Joey and Jesse Buss and the perspective they bring. We have a scout like Bill Burka, who's 93 years old and has, has seen it all and has a treasure chest of, of stories. And I, I think when I make decisions and I, I could go on and on about all the people in the front office that are so valuable um, and deserve the credit for this championship. But I think the best decisions are made when you listen to a lot of different lenses, consider them all, and then make your choice as a leader. And I think that's how we've, that's our ecosystem. It's how we've operated. And Frank fit that perfectly. Are you better at that now than when you took over? And when you take over and you go, okay, I'm responsible. I'm the GM. I've, I've got to, maybe I've got to try to do everything. Do you become better at doing that in the job as you go through it and trial and error and what decisions worked and then how did I come to that decision or did I not listen to that perspective that I should have? Do you, is that an evolving thing when you're in the job? Absolutely. You know, there's um, when you start something new, you probably have a sense of like, okay, I, you know, I got this. I, I know what it's going to take, but <laughs> I think you realize how little maybe you do know. And I have to give credit to the other GMs in the league. I mean, I'm one of 30. There's 29 other incredible leaders around the league. And I think back to um, when I first took a job as a sports agent, I packed up my old rusty Jeep in Chicago and I I drove it out to uh, Brentwood um, because Arne Tellum had hired me to be a lawyer in his office in 1998. And I go in there and uh, there's a, another young kid, you know, in the cubicle that we shared, Bob Myers, <laughs> who's gone on to win multiple titles. Um, you know, Neil O'Shea is, 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 is one of the workout coaches and rebounding for Jason Capono. And, you know, I just think of some of the colleagues, um, over the years that I've gotten to learn from and respect. And then, you know, just looking at other great leaders throughout the league and what they've done. And, of course, have incorporated a lot of those things into our style. But um, I think that still a lot to learn and a lot to grow. I, I think that was – and, you know, the, the, the true geniuses in life, Kobe, LeBron, they're always evolving. They're always learning. They're always getting better. And I think that's part of the journey. It's funny you mentioned Bob Myers and you walk in and he's in the cubicle. Bob had played – it's funny, you and Bob have a lot in – you know, Bob was, you know, role player at UCLA and came in and won a national championship. You played with the Fab Five at, at Michigan at a high level, and then you both become agents for Arn Tellum, which was at the time the, the preeminent agency. And then Bob goes and makes the move to the Warriors, and 
wins, you said multiple titles, and then you get the opportunity and with the Lakers, but I would think for you, Bob, has been sort of like some synergy to your paths, right? Yeah, you know, it, there is, there's the typical GM path, which is, you know, get hired for a low-level position, have to scout and travel all over the world, then you become director of player personnel, then you become assistant GM, then you become GM, then you become president. And I get that's the, the normal road and a hard and arduous road, but I think that all roads to that position are refining. And just because your road's different, the one that Bob had or that I had, or now Leon Rose or Justin Zanuck, I mean, that road was a lot of hard work. Law school and business school are not easy endeavors. Um, then starting as a, as a corporate attorney, um, grinding hours, learning how to negotiate, then starting with Arn as a lawyer and then evolving into an agent. There was a lot of hard work and learning that went into it. So I think it's a different road, but it doesn't mean it's not, not as equally hard. But, but for sure, I've, I've gleaned so much of, uh, from the other GMs in the league, whether they came in in a similar way or not. Was there any one thing, Bob, when Bob, you, you get the Lakers job and the next time you talk to Bob or as you're talking, was there ever like one thing he said to you that you said, hey, this is one thing you and maybe at the moment you didn't think of it, but you thought back later and said, oh, yeah, Bob said whether it was the transition or the adjustment, because it, it was a very comparable comparable move. Did he say something at that time that's jumped that stayed with you? Or you thought about more later? We, we talk often, um, and you know Bob's a, a deep guy and a deep thinker and a wonderful person. Um, and I, re, I just remember him saying, hey, if, you know, maybe you guys are going to get a chance to get to the end this year, but the thing you can't predict is just how hard the road to the very end is. You can have an incredible roster and a great coach and all these things, but all the different things that have to fall into place to actually get to the end and hold the Larry O'Brien trophy. And I think this year in particular, 2020, with all that we had to go through and then add to it the isolation of a bubble, it's maybe one of the hardest roads anyone's had to. And so I, I now the gravity in Bob's statement about mm -hmm. that to me really has set in. And it's helped me kind of get to this place, which someone said this to me the other day. It was actually a, one of the uh, the agents who was calling to congratulate. He said, he said, if, if you can't appreciate and relish this for a few days, a few weeks, then you need to get a different job because this happens so rarely that you've got. And so I've, I've tried to have a frame and I've told my friends this, I've told my wife this to just live in gratitude. Of course, the work continues and we're waiting for the news of when this moratorium ends yep. so we can draft and do free agency, but to try to live every day in just gratitude and appreciation for this moment. And um, I know you get that, Woj. You've covered the game for so long. Your archive is greater than maybe anyone else's in terms of the stories and the characters and the people. And part of it is surreal for me to sit here and think through all the different people you've talked to that have accomplished this and all the stories you have. And now, now I'm doing that. It's, it's amazing. Cause um, you've just done an amazing job covering this league for so long. And I almost have to pinch myself. Well, well, I appreciate that. And I thought I was, as I was driving down here today, one thing I was thinking about, and I've said this since Kobe has left, um, and I said it when Kobe was with us, 
like nobody gave me more credibility in the NBA than Kobe did because Kobe decided to talk to me early in when I moved to just become an NBA to just cover the NBA and back when I was at Yahoo and the fact that Kobe talked to me and was willing to answer my questions and sit down and visit it gave me credibility with people because I thought well if Kobe will talk to him I guess and there's others in the league who I put in that group um and so um you know obviously listen I know what he's done for your life and he changed you know but but uh, there's plenty of people who feel that way and he had that ability um and I, I I think about it you know I still think about it a lot I go back I found uh, an email from him back in the Blackberry days and I don't know where I was why I was searching it was an email from it was his first day <laughs> it was his first day back from uh, the Achilles injury so it had happened the previous year I think it was after the start of practice it was sometime I think during training camp and I just, I just got an email, and it just had two words, and it said first day, um, mm. which was his way of saying I practiced today. Mm. Like go ahead and report it. I, I I found it recently going through searching something, and that first day that was his way of saying I'm I'm back. And so, um, but we're, we're I know we're at a place where you two spent um, a lot of time, and so it's kind of been nice to walk back through that with you, Rob, and I. Appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad we got to to do this and sit back and go back through um, the, the image I have of you in the bubble, Rob. Yes, on the court and the Lakers winning, but there was a pool that we met at, <laughs> and I was waiting for you to come, and I said, I hope I'm at the right spot, and there's somebody just swimming up and back in the pool <laughs> and not coming up for air. And it didn't occur to me that it was you in the pool. And so I'm sitting there looking around going, and then I texted you and I said, am I at the right? Cause I had just got into the bubble and I'm like, am I at the right place? And after I texted you, I look up and I go, Oh, that's Rob in the pool. You were doing your laps. <laughs> yes. We had to find ways to keep our sanity there. And, um, that was one of my, my escapes was to kind of swim laps. And I, I, I guess as we kind of wrap it up, Woj, too, I think, too, of, um, you know, obviously what Adam Silver, um, Michelle Roberts, players like Chris Paul and Andre Godala did to build that bubble. I, I remember in March when, when the league stopped thinking, I, I don't know if we can find a way to get right. to the end. And um, I think for all of us, we're all in this business just to, to have to be grateful that a champion for 2020 was crowned. Um, I went to Michigan Law School. I think of people like Dave Weiss, who went to Michigan Law School. He's a Wolverine. Probably no one has put more hours in. One of to, the unheralded MVPs yeah, of that to, to, He works in know, the league office. And he works was, in the league yeah. office, and he, he's a brilliant lawyer, but all of a sudden had to become a brilliant doctor <laughs> you know, to, to figure this out. But to have a bubble with no cases, I, I'm just so appreciative to, and we are, the Lakers are so appreciative, all the people that made sacrifices and to, to allow us to get to the end. And so the trophy, you know, isn't just for the Lakers. I think it's for the NBA. And um, it's a great day to celebrate, and it's fun to celebrate uh, with a conversation with you by the pool. Absolutely. Rob, thanks, thanks for doing this. Good to see you. See you, Woj. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thanks to my guest today, Lakers Executive VP and General Manager, Rob Palenka. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts, and also... Be sure to catch 
The Low Post with Zach Lowe, and The Hoop Collective, hosted by Brian Windhorst. We'll catch you next time. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.